hey, do you remember SDN? No, I'm being serious, software-defined networking. That was pretty much every other blog post and podcast five years ago, and I can't remember the last time that I heard someone talk about it since then. So what happened? I mean, is SDN still a thing? Was it just so successful that we don't need to talk about it anymore? Yeah, I know I'm being ridiculous, but seriously, what's going on with SDN these days? Joining me today is my new friend, Leon Adato, fellow technical evangelist with me here at Kentic, a technologist with years and years of experience in networking and specifically network visibility. And today, that's what we're going to talk about, kind of. I mean, we don't really know the exact answer of what the deal is with SDN, but we have some ideas. My name is Philip Gervasi, and this is Telemetry Now. Hey, Leon, welcome. It's really great to have you, and welcome to Kentic. It's been a few weeks now, I think, right? Is that... That, it's, it's, it's been a few weeks, but I, I say that I've been here for about 12 minutes, maybe 13 at this point. Um, but yeah, it is amazing to be here. Uh, I've, yeah. you know, known a lot of folks at Kentic for a while and sort of been pining to be part of the team. And they finally let me sit with the cool kids in the lunch at the lunch table with the cool kids at the lunch table, which brings back to my memory, all sorts of like eighties movies of teenage angst and all that, that fun stuff. So yeah. Yeah. yeah as, as is want, right. I mean, like, isn't that the the mode of the day is, is going back to the eighties. It's all the, all the movies and everything. Like it really is. We watched, uh, our family movie night the other night was, uh, Ghostbusters. My son didn't watch it. He's only nine. And so he was in bed, but my daughters are, are older. So we watched Ghostbusters. That was a lot of fun. Uh, my, my wife loves Molly Ringwald movies. We love eighties music. We listen to a lot of journey and Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel in my house. I like other stuff too. Don't get me wrong. I'm a product of the nineties more uh-huh. of the early nineties. I was in the throes of high school when uh, Nirvana washed up from the shores of Puget Sound and, <laughs> and took over the world. So that was a lot of fun. Wow. So I'm about 10 years ahead or behind or however you want to do time, wibbly-wobbly, yeah. timey-wimey stuff. But uh, yeah, the 80s mm-hmm. are squi- – the, the 80s were about me. Like all those movies that you named were happening while I was in it. Yeah. Loved it. I love it. I love it very much. I don't know what's going on today. With, uh, you know what? I sound like such an old curmudgeon as the words are coming out of my mouth. I don't know what's going on today with these Back kids, but I watch my day. daughters and my son to a lesser extent. But And I look at them and I'm like, you know, my, my oldest daughter, who's almost 17, she's starting to wear Doc Martens again. She loves the Smashing Pumpkins. She wears flannels now. And my, my middle daughter, a little bit less so, but, you know, similar. And I'm looking at them like, you guys think I'm like an old, old guy, but... You're, you know, we, my generation invented the stuff that apparently you think is the coolest stuff out there. So here we I are. I will tell you that when I was, you know, younger, I was preteen, Happy Days was all the rage. In the 70s, Happy Days was all the rage. Mm-hmm. And I heard the same thing. You know, my parents and their friends were like, you think you invented all of this stuff? You know, it was all coming back. Everybody wanted to be Fonzie and, you know. So I think it's just cyclical. I think that, that vintage mm, is... Yep you know, just, you know, 25 years behind whatever you are as a teenager. I agree. In fact, um, I'll share this another time when we have maybe a podcast episode dedicated specifically on music trends, but I have a theory that sort of breaks down now in the age of the internet, but I have a theory about popular music. I want to talk about it with you one day. I'm going to leave it as a cliffhanger for our audience. One day I'm going to do a podcast about it. Yeah, right. I did share it internally with our team and um, uh, a couple people 
they they were very quick to find all the holes in my logic. So that made which, me feel which, sad. Which but makes anyway, it more fun. Well, yeah, that's true. So you are a technical evangelist with Kenthic, as am I. But is that what you have been doing for your career? Or uh, has there been a journey and a progression into what the, you're doing there's now? Always, like there's always a journey. And and I am a man of a particular age. I mean, I've, I've basically dated myself at this point. I'm, I'm at the point in my career where I find that my goal is to use all the privilege that I have and open doors and shove other people through it. And, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to folks... I remind them that that everything that we're doing is sort of a journey. There's no, uh, there's no. Oh, and I was born that way, or this is I learned this, and that's the way I stayed for the rest of my career. None of those things are ever true. So I actually my going all the way back. My degree is in theater, uh, because in 1985 when I started college, uh, the internet was certainly not a thing, and computers were barely a thing. And when I got out of college to work in tech, uh, the two things you needed were breathing in a suit, and one was actually optional. So I got into you know computers when you could get Windows for free on five uh, on twelve five and a quarter inch floppies, and you got it for free because it came it came with Excel one which nobody ever used, because everyone was still mm -hmm. using Lotus one two three. So that was where I started, and I actually started doing training. Because effectively, you know, computer training is nothing but stand-up. It's just a little bit more specific than a stand-up routine. And it fed that theater urge in my soul. And I worked my way up the IT food chain from training to desktop support to uh, sysadmin and, you know, sort of stepped sideways into network engineering. And then uh, I got involved about 25 years ago with monitoring automation and systems management, which was fairly new at the time. And I've never looked back. I've got, I've been building, maintaining, mm -hmm. uh, tweaking, monitoring systems, using all kinds of software, everything from Tivoli and OpenView and janky Perl scripts, which is really yeah. Tivoli all over again. And, you know, all the way up through, you know, Grafana and Zabbix and janky Python scripts and, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So, and, and of course, Kentic. So that's, that's my journey in sort of a very tight nutshell. It's my, my IT superhero origin story. I was dropped in a vat of uh, floppy disks as a baby. So uh, when you said theater, of course, what immediately came to mind was John Lovitz when he's like, Acting, yeah, and uh, that's uh, yeah. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but uh, that's what came to my mind. So here we are, and uh, today I spoke to Christoph Fister. He's the uh, chief product officer at Kentic. We 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 did a, we did a LinkedIn live, and uh, and it's already out. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, uh, you can still go back and listen to that or watch that because that is video. Um, and uh, and check out what he has to say because what he was talking about and what we talked about together it was specifically the role of generative AI generative not general generative AI and large language models in IT operations now we did focus a little bit more on networking than anything else because we are a networking focused company but IT operations in general as well yeah. but it got me thinking and then I brought it up to you you know this really feels it smells it has this flavor of what I always thought SDN, Software Defined Networking, was always supposed to be. And then I started thinking, 
we don't talk about SDN anymore. <laughs> that was 10 years ago. There's a few years where every single blog, every single video, every single podcast oh was about gosh. SDN. And then whoosh, end, done. You know, there was all this like vaporware stuff and architecture and, uh, you know, thought leaderish kind of stuff, thought leadery kind of stuff. And then, then we stopped hearing about it. But it's always been in my mind. And, you know, we, we have these manifestations of SD-WAN or SDN, SD-WAN, actually, that was a Freudian slip because SD-WAN, I think, is an actual manifestation of SDN that we can point to. Anyway, um, I, I really feel like this is kind of now coming into fruition, where we're, we're, we're talking about this software overlay to physical and virtual infrastructure and configuration, all these things, where human beings are interfacing with it in a very different way. Uh, and it's really exciting to me. But anyway, that's what we were talking about. Yeah. I wanted to get your take on it, because I know you have strong opinions about, well, everything. <laughs> but in this Guilty. case, specifically, strong opinions about um, the 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 architecture and smoke and mirrors surrounding Gen AI and large language models. So I yeah I I think that SDN the concept, the movie, the book, the sequel. Um, I think the concept of SDN was really exciting for a lot of us. Um, as much as it never really came to fruition, but even things as simple as. Um, having a tool that would configure your network infrastructure, like pre-provision your network infrastructure, and then when it saw where it was, it saw its IP address or it saw the VLAN it was part of, would automatically start to put more configurations into play automatically. And, you know, being able to respond to the circumstances on the network and update the the configuration based on that. Maybe we're going to reroute traffic this way or this kind of traffic this way or whatever it is. That was the promise of SDN. And um, it very quickly, you know, proved itself to be way more complicated than anybody wanted it to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why people yeah. backed away from it. But the promise of it, and we could see the seeds of it, because we have tools that will pre-provision, you know, that will keep a whole bunch of code snippets and just throw them on boxes. Mm -hmm. And we have things that will respond to a monitoring event. You know, oh, we saw, you know, traffic spiking of this, we saw this kind of flow going in this direction. And, you know, let me throw a different configuration on there. We, we can imagine it, but it doesn't quite go there. Um, so, yeah, I... I think that the idea of SDN was really brilliant. And uh, in in the talk with with Christoph, you even said, I'm, I'm going to steal your movie analogy. You were, you know, you quoted um, Star Trek and you you quoted the point where Scotty was sitting down with a modern day, which was, I think, an Apple two CI in the movie or something like that. Just this, you know, beige box kind of thing and he goes mm -hmm. to yeah. you know he goes to talk to the computer and it doesn't respond and the person picks up a mouse and says you have to use this and so he rolls the mouse over looking at the uh, the the roller ball and says computer and you know we all in the audience busted up because that's not how that works but um you know you had said during your talk with Christoph that you know that's how you felt the computers ought to interact and SDN was an aspect of that you know Determine, look at my current circumstances and, you know, help me come to a resolution, help me get to a finished product of some kind. And that's what people are seeing with generative AI now. I mean, ChatGPT, and yes, mm -hmm. I insist on calling it ChatGPT. Um, thank you, Corey Quinn. Really, that's, that's its promise, 
is that I can give it a couple of sentences. I want you to do blah, 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 blah. And it will make a damn good attempt at trying to do that. Mm. So I, I think that's where we start, right? Is, yeah. is, I yeah. think SDN software defined networking was just so ambiguous that it meant very little. And so therefore it was just this nebulous thing that we couldn't nail down. Is this SDN or is this SDN? What about this product? And so it just remained in the realm of smoke and mirrors and, and architecture and vaporware, all that stuff. Um, because it was, it was that nebulous, ambiguous thing yeah. that nobody could pin down. Nevertheless, this idea of software being a, you know, adding abstraction layers between human beings and the network, the underlying network and infrastructure, well, that's kind of always been there, mm -hmm. right? Isn't a VLAN a software-defined element, you know? I mean, it's a logical element, not a physical box thing that we can touch and, and you know. And so, um, and so I think that it started to die. It started to die down as a term that was popular to use. I, I've always found that, like, the kind of like the thought leader circles would be talking about things that were maybe three, five, even seven years ahead of where the industry was. And so maybe this one was just a little delayed. And so 10 years ago, we're talking about SDN, and now it's finally coming to fruition. So maybe that's what it is. But there were and are, I think, very palpable manifestations of these software abstraction layers in between a human and, and underlying hardware, like SD-WAN. And like other uh, control plane uh, platforms, mm -hmm. uh, whether they be homegrown kind of things or some, you know, some vendor creating another um, uh, a control plane mechanism to manage an entire data center or, or whatever it happens to be. And then, of course, we had network automation become very, very ubiquitous, where uh, it, at one point it was just relegated to like hipster networking. Now everybody's kind of <laughs> doing it in the sense that you can, uh, you know, ingest all this information into your IPAM and into your CRM and all these things and then uh, call on those in your Python scripts and Ansible playbooks to do certain things, to pre-provision devices, to um, uh, elicit a a uh, some kind of a, a configuration push when some kind of event is no so we can do that stuff i just think it's become less cool to talk about because we're starting to see those manifestations and and i think that what we're seeing now with uh, the application of generative uh, generative ai large language models in the realm of it operations is another manifestation of that and a very very cool one and thank you for bringing up that star trek scene <laughs> One of my favorites. I love it. I've made a couple of memes of that one in particular. But I will also allude to Star Trek The Next Generation because I've always wanted to, well, not as much anymore because I'm not a network operator. But when I was, I always wanted to be able to talk to the network like Jordy talked to, excuse me, Lieutenant Commander Jordy yes. Forge, give her where it's due. Um, you know, I've wanted to be able to talk to the network in that natural way, like he spoke to the enterprise, to the enterprise computer. And so that's what CP talked a lot about today. He talked about the natural language query, which is based on the concept of natural language processing, which is kind of the umbrella over large language models. And it's basically providing an interface between, you know, you and me as human beings and data. Yeah. Not, not looking at commander right. data. But actually, the data also set. an AI, <laughs> and then being able to query it, which is where we get NLQ. But uh, you know, ultimately leading toward other other cool things like automated remediation and automated root cause analysis, and that's well. And thing. I so I I think, really I, cool. I think that I think what you've just done is interpreted the the current technology, the again LLM and generative AI through the lens of the work that you do. And I think that lots of people, mm, I think lots of people are doing that. What What's interesting is that you are finding this 
LLM, again, ChatGPT, Bolt-On, you're finding it in Salesforce. You're finding it being built into Okta. You're finding it being built yeah. into washing machines. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen that. And um, certainly, you know, monitoring and observability tools. Um, you know, that's that's happening because I think lots of people, and, and, and then just, you know, you, you look at um, GitHub Copilot, you know, which is another generative AI that helps code complete. And, and I've seen a few of my capital D developer friends. I'm a script kitty, basically, which is an insult to scripts and kitties everywhere. But I, <laughs> you know, but I have friends who are real developers and watching them use code, using Copilot, it's reading the code base, their actual code base and making assumptions about what function they're about to throw in there, how they're going to implement that function, the pattern they're going to use. I mean, it's making some really interesting and complex assumptions and then helping them code complete. And that's from a developer standpoint. So of course the potential is there. The thing that strikes me though is um, on the, now it's less so today than it was three months ago. But three months ago when ChatGPT was really, really the new hotness and nobody knew what was happening, people were sort of losing their ever-loving mind because, you know, it's going to get, you know, everybody who writes is going to be out of a job and everybody who does essays in school is going to be using this and we'll have no way of knowing if it's plagiarism and whatever. And I'm not saying those risks were unfounded, but I think that they were overblown in the same way. And again, I'm going to date myself. When I was in elementary school, pocket calculators first came out. And in fact, late elementary school, early junior high is when Casio made its first watch that had teeny tiny itty bitty buttons for a calculator on the watch. And schools were losing their ever loving mind. Nobody's ever going to learn how to do math again. Nobody's going to learn how to, you know, calculate. They're just going to put it on the calculator. And that's it. And of course that never happened because you still have to know how to math to use the calculator. If I'm balancing my checkbook and I'm using the square root function, something is horribly, horribly wrong. And it's probably not that my finances are very complicated. It's probably that I don't know how to math particularly well. So what the yeah. calculator ended up proving was that it allows somebody like me, who is not consistent in their math abilities, to be more consistent. And I see generative AI doing the same thing. But the problem is you have to know what you're doing in the first place. And taking it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. T taking it back to the network thing, you know, if I use NLQ, you know, uh, natural language query. And I say, I'd like you to show me all of my layer two switches that have high CPU and, uh, you know, are causing routes to collapse, which I know is not a thing. I'm just making up words, right? I'm, I'm basically being chat GPT right now. But I have to I have to have a sense that the sentence I said is utter hogwash. I will use that word in lieu of something stronger. And also, even if I phrase something correctly, oh, I want to know all the routers that have high CPU and are in spin lock. I have to be able to look at the results and understand whether I actually got back what I asked for. None of, none of the labor saving of NLQ, of, of the LLM, has done anything to reduce my, the onus on me to be a decent IT professional. What it might do, though, is help somebody who's a little bit newer ask a question that they understand the question but won't, won't know how to phrase it correct particularly well and help them bridge that gap. 
that's what I see. Or who don't necessarily know how to get the answer. Because that's ultimately the, the real thing here is that the whole point is augmenting an engineer, not replacing an right. engineer. And so there's an incredible amount of domain knowledge that's required for you to prompt the, the, the platform correctly and properly so that you don't get a ridiculous yeah. answer. I mean, you want to know why is my uh, why is Microsoft 365 slow in my Chicago office on the second floor of the building? You know, that's that's very broad, so you don't need it. But you know, to be able to understand the answer when it starts to talk about um, we're experiencing latency on this hop with this particular provider, here are the IP addresses or something right. like that, right? It requires a lot of domain knowledge, both to prompt correctly and to understand the answer correctly. What it's really doing is again, it's an interface between a human being and the data set. And so that presupposes knowledge of, of, of the data set, not a knowledge meaning an, uh, of, of knowing all of the data, but understanding the, the forms and types of data, uh, and then allowing the machine to do something that uh, we can do technically, but just dramatically faster. Right. Dramatically right. faster. And, uh, and so, you know, if you can afford a team of 20 PhDs from MIT, <laughs> maybe they can do what an LLM and an LQ and all these things can do for you in a few weeks or months or I don't know, and you know they're identifying correlation and saying the correlation coefficient with these two things here or is this, and we I, we think that swinging peers from data center A to data center B is causing latency over here with this application. So you could, they could start to figure that out. But honestly, a lot of engineers can as well. It just takes an inordinate amount of yeah. time. And so what we're doing is we're using this uh, this this approach to reduce. MTTR, that's always the case, right? Reduce the mean time to resolution by augmenting a very operational practice. By making something that's very manual, uh, clue chaining, um, you know, troubleshooting, whatever you want to call it, uh, programmatic. And I think the really cool stuff, that, so that's the stuff that we're doing already right now, and we're doing it with a um, uh, small subset of our customers who want to try this out, training the model and doing it, you know, fine-tune it for accuracy. Cool. Long term, I'm really excited. That's cool enough. Yeah. That is true. But I, I am really excited about the things where we start to use the tool to identify correlation to derive insight that would be near impossible for a human well, to do. So what you're because of the vast volume and divergence diversity. Right. And and what you're doing now is you're calling out two things. You're calling out the the ease of use, the, again, that natural language interface along with That's the data. Right. But, but they go together, mm -hmm. right? Like the whole point of observability, you know, observability versus monitoring, right? I, this is part of a lot of conversations I have is, you know, are you old school monitoring? Or are you, you know, the new fancy, newfangled observability? At which point, you know, Charity Major's head explodes and everything like that because everybody is defining observability as completely different things. But, um, you know, observability writ large tends to be interested in large disparate data sets and digging through things that a human cannot reason about in any way because there's just so much data in so many different directions. And so on the one hand, you have an observability system, something that ha can take that large data and again, slice it, pivot it, and reason about it. And then you're putting the LLM, the large language model interface in front of it so that you can ask questions without having to do PromQL or you know, some sort of you know, customized query language. And, and that can be incredibly powerful. Um, but I want to make sure everybody who's listening recognizes that we are talking about two major things. One is the data itself and the engine 
on top of the data that can that can reason about it, that can deal with that much data and slice it and dice it, and then the language model on top of it. And what we yeah, what we're true. getting to also is I've heard this term a few times now, prompt engineer, which I love. I I would be terrified if it became an actual job, but I think as a skill set, prompt engineer, meaning somebody who understands LLM interfaces enough to write better prompts sooner so that you bring down the cycle time on asking a question of the LLM and getting the correct or the accurate or the or the desired response back because one of the things I see all the time, I, you know, watch video, YouTube videos or whatever about, you know, I typed this query in and it wrote my entire 2000 line program for me. Ha ha. And I'm thinking about that scene from the movie Sully where they've shown him the pilots who executed the maneuver to go back to LaGuardia. And he just leans into the microphone and he says, how many times? And everyone's like, what do you mean? And he says, how many times did they have to practice that before the one that you just filmed? And the answer was 17. They had to practice the maneuver 17 times before they finally got it right and filmed it. And I see that with people interacting with ChatGPT or any of the other LLM systems is that the first question never gets you what you want. You've got, oh, no, no, not, 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 not like that. I need you to do it like this. I, no, okay, yeah, but I need it to be shorter. I need to be... And finally, by the fifth, seventh, tenth, twentieth iteration, you finally know how to ask the question the right way to get it. It's uh, to quote a different movie, because apparently that's what we're doing from the Lego movie, you know, Batman, when he's like, got it the first time after he's thrown the batarang like 52 more times, like first time. So, you know, okay. All right, fine. You know, always post your W's. But it is a an entire ecosystem of technology, right? So we've been focused on ChatGPT, ChatGPT. <laughs> we've been focused on large language models and generative AI because that's what you know. That's top of mind since we talked about it today in that LinkedIn Live. But in the con the greater context of SDN, what its promises were a decade ago, and what's going on today, we are talking about utilizing all of these technologies to get us yet the next to the next step. You know, it's iterative like anything else. And so you mentioned, you know, we're talking about LLMs, but an LLM is not going to graph out my OSPF database for me. It's going to be the interface with regard to language and predicting words and then summarizing, you know, maybe summarizing codes, things like that. And then it's going to require those other technologies, whether they be plugins, mm -hmm. like, you know, now Dolly is a plugin for ChatGPT, but it could be any kind of plugins. Uh, network-centric plugins, uh, uh, IT operations plugins, whatever, so that way there is uh, the, the the natural language processor is actually the interface between us and then yet other technology that is then going and interfacing with the data. But ultimately, that's it. That's the whole software-defined abstraction piece. And th right now, we're talking about deriving uh, Im information, right, or, uh, or identifying correlation, maybe, or seeing patterns. And that's all really, really cool. That's a kind of a cornerstone of observability. Mm -hmm. um, for operations, I, uh, for it to then even then uh, produce within the realm of probability or a confidence level, here is the solution. And then the next step after that, just things automating automatically uh, resolving themselves uh, through this entire workflow of many many different topics. that's that's uh, uh, very compelling that's obviously a w very far off but uh, you could see the beginnings of that all happening yeah here. the thing the thing I wonder about and I'm going to ask you about is whether anyone will get to or be comfortable getting to a point where 
the system, this, this again, the, the data sitting on top of an engine that can reason about the engine, sitting on top of a language model, where anybody would be comfortable with it basically autonomously dealing with everything. I, I think that traffic routing is fairly, you know, is fairly simple enough, and every CCIE listening to this is laughing their head off right now. Oh, yeah, sure, it's simple. Yeah, Leon, whatever. You got your CCNA in 2004. You know, but um, I think that that routing traffic, looking at traffic patterns and making some changes is one thing. But I know people who refuse to implement alerts like autom automation in their alerts because they're not comfortable that the problem is predictable enough to even respond with automation to relatively simple problems like, you know, just, you know, interface configuration things and things like that. So I wonder whether our comfort level for autonomous reaction will ever increase to the point where we would actually let it drive unattended. Yeah, I think so. I do. And uh, I, I'm, I, I bet there are a lot of people that disagree with me. Um, I've had that conversation many times, uh, both when I was a practitioner and then afterward when I was working for vendors. Uh, but I know some colleagues of mine that are still practitioners and, and then customers of ours that say, what, the, the thing, the, the platform will automatically, the network will fix itself? Yeah, that's great. Do it. <laughs> so this idea money. that uh, I will only, <laughs> yeah, I only want the, um, I want the alert. I want the suggested remediation. That's awesome. By the way, if we stop right there, that's still a gigantic step yeah. forward. So it's not like I'm knocking. Um, and I want that. But then I want the, you know, the button to be able to say, now push the configuration. So I can review and do everything. Maybe I can incorporate it into a change management workflow and submit it to a cab meeting or something like that. And so that is true. But I, I do know enough, like, and, and especially in uh, smaller enterprises, so let's say like a large school district where you have a small team of IT mm -hmm. folks and maybe one network uh, expert, one person who's managing all the windows or desktops, whatever. I don't know. You got a team of 10 people, which uh, sounds like a tiny little organization, but it might be 15,000 people right. in, this, in this school district. So, so in an organization like that, uh, oh, it's not mission critical because it's this or it's not e-commerce. It's not fancy. And it's like, oh, really? How about... Uh, Connectivity to all the school buses that have, uh, you know, a, a, a LTE modem on the bus, and they're sending metrics and, and GPS back to the main office. And then there's like police and municipal services involved. That's not mission critical to you. The lives of the 50 kids on that right. bus. Come on. Right. Um, and so yeah, and the two cops that are down in the main office, they have an office in the office. I mean, you see this stuff. And so I I think in, a, in an organization like that, yeah. You say, hey, this platform will automatically uh, fix this, you know, these switch ports will automatically get reconfigured or will re reroute this thing. You know, uh, maybe maybe, maybe re we reserve certain things for I need approval, but I absolutely think that there are engineers that would jump all over that. I, I would, yeah. you know, and I get it. There's a trust relationship, but I think that with actual practitioners, um, save certain very, you know, mission critical sort of uh, very sophisticated environments, uh, I, think, I think there would be mass adoption very quickly. And I think one of the key things to that is accountability within the system, meaning it's one thing to say my monitoring is collecting all this, you know, telemetry, and then it's digesting it, and the, the language model is, is looking into it and all of that stuff, and then it's making changes. But can I do... Uh, a time machine 
effect. Can I roll back and say, all right, the network looked like this, and then this thing happened, and then this change was implemented? As long as I can go back and review it and say, oh, I see the assumption the system made. I see why it did that thing. I think that, that I'm comfortable enough to know, oh, I, I, I fed it. I fed it wrong assumptions. I fed it, you know, not enough parameters. I didn't set a threshold high enough to say when this happens, you know, there's my circuit breaker pattern of something. I, I think that's a key aspect of it. I mean, I realize that we are designing product as we talk on this podcast. And it's really easy, actually. I've never coded as well as I, I'm doing right now. But uh, it's, uh, it, I, I think as long as you have that accountability within the system, a lot of more people would be comfortable with it. It's when I don't know what happened. I don't know why I, and I can't, I can't look back. Sure. That's, that's where I think people yeah. are afraid things might go because we can't, when I use Dali, when I use ChatGPT, when I use those things, I can't see what's happening under the hood. And I think that people worry that that's going to be the default experience Behind, you know, I can't see why. Um, what was it? Temperature. Kristoff uh, in the in the LinkedIn Live was talking about temperature to figure out the next word and the threshold to figure out the next word. And if I can't see the temperature settings, if I can't see why it decided to use the word manhole cover instead of hamster instead of you know sandwich, I I don't understand why it's doing this, and I can't trust it. Yeah, and you can't interact with it anymore because you don't know how to elicit the response that you right. want. You know, and when you say trust, we're talking about a, a matter of accuracy and uh, confidence that it's going to do the right thing or you know uh, push the right config and solve the problem. But we kind of do that already, don't we? I mean, SD WAN will reroute traffic for you without you telling it to. It does it automatically based on whatever metrics and and uh, whatever. Um, whatever whatever it's using to test the quality of various links, and sometimes it's not just the links, but entire paths between sources and destination, and, and then it reroutes traffic. Um, we have other other technologies that we use that, that are similar. In the security field, uh, we'll shut down an interface if there's um, thresholds, whether they're dynamically created thresholds by pattern recognition and by baselining, so that's kind of statistical analysis and some you know basic ML stuff. Um, so we do that there. Granted, it's not, you know, reconfiguring data center, but it is, it is an action of pushing a config, shutting down an interface or something like that. I, One of the tenets of intent-based networking was to be able to use a certain type of more natural language to tell the system um, to, uh, that this is what the intent of, of this configuration of this network is supposed to be, a reference architecture, if you will. And then if there's any deviation, the, the network will, will heal itself. So, so we're, we're already moving in this direction. And that's why I really do believe that engineers out there would be quick to adopt something that actually does push config and there is a trust relationship. And, and, and I think very quickly you're going to see that uh, if there's a problem, if, if that trust is broken, nobody's going to buy the product and it's not going <laughs> to, you're not going to see it as a common uh, platform deployed in all the enterprises uh, uh, around the world. So there, there is that market control, I think. Right. But I don't know. Do you think that that's what SD, SDN, Software Defined Networking, is all about? It's been a long time since we heard anything about it. Maybe we should start writing some blogs about right. SDN in, in this context. Right. Well, I mean, I, again, I think SDN failed, SDN failed to define itself clearly enough to avoid being marketed to death. And so uh, it became anything that anybody wanted it to be 
it became anything the marketers wanted it to be, and yeah, therefore technologists stayed True. away in droves. I think that if somebody put a stake in the ground and said, this is SDN, even if this is, you know, company X brand SDN, all rights reserved, trademark. Um, I think that that would help yep. IT practitioners feel more comfortable that they were getting what they thought they were getting. Um, I, To your point about SD-WAN working, I think that there's a relatively small segment of the IT practitioner space, let alone the network engineer space, that deals with SD-WAN on a regular basis. So it's somewhat invisible. I also know that whenever anything automatic happened, look, I've, I've had websites that have ended up on blacklists for uh, email spam accidentally oh, yeah, or sure. whatever. And, and mm -hmm. I know that when something is misconfigured incorrectly, when it's, when it's misconfigured and I, and I personally feel wronged by it, people get upset really, really fast. And, and, you know, they're up in arms about it. And I think that if you have, again, a monitoring and observability system that is feeding into your network configuration, the opportunity for a mistake to destroy all trust is really, is really large. Yep. Um, yeah, and sure. I think that SD-WAN, SD-WAN is unique enough and limited enough, limited in terms of the audience. I, I would argue that the the CTO doesn't re might know that SD WAN is happening in their organization, but it may not even know who's responsible for it, let alone where it happens or which devices or any of that stuff. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a small cadre of people who understand it enough to do anything with it, and everyone else may point to it as, look, we have SD-WAN, it's amazing! I don't know why! I do think that <laughs> SD-WAN in particular is a outgrowth of one of the definitions of SDN, yeah. the disaggregation of the control plane and the yeah. device. And so now you have, you know, your control plane, well, I mean, there is a control plane that's distributed so the devices can make local decisions and hardware, but then you have your central brain, uh -huh. which is some controller, SD-WAN controller, in your data center or in the cloud. And so there is um, you know, policy that's pushed from there. And so there's a lot of benefits. So I think SD-WAN specifically falls under that sort of definition of, of SDN, where a lot of folks were harping on that one definition, the disaggregation of the software and the hardware, the control plane and the data plane, that kind of thing. And you saw, uh, you saw that happening at the switch level. You saw that happening now here at the, the router, the WAN, mm -hmm. right? Um, you started to see that at the campus level with certain with certain uh, vendors that had entire overlays built on VXLAN and, and uh, DNS and things like that. And so, um, but, that, but that's just one sliver. Yeah. And so that's why, that's why again, it, it was an ambiguous, nebulous term we weren't able to pin down, so I completely agree with you there. And, uh, but I, I have to say, you know, it, I, it still makes me wonder sometimes now that I hear LLMs and, and generative AI all the time, if that's also likewise just a term that the marketing folks use and that the practitioners roll their eyes at and it's going to disappear. But, you know, that, that thought is in my head, but I don't know, Leon. I think maybe, I mean, we're just seeing too many real practical benefits yeah. in, in the rest of the world too, but, but specifically in technology for me to say it's just architecture. I, I, I've watched, like I've watched, you know, SOA and, um, oh God, so many different standards and ideas that took, the marketing space in IT by storm and then just, you know, fell away because nobody backed it up or nobody could define it or whatever. And, and I think SDN fell prey to that, but you're right. Um, there's already been the AI winter 
So we've already been through that. Uh -huh. And so now we're looking at an actual implementation of AI. So I think it's going to turn into something. Whether it remains what we see today mm -hmm. is entirely a different question. But I think it's going to end up being... It's, it's going to end up being something. It's going to end up being something fairly useful. Um, but it is going to progress uh, like mm -hmm. like everything like everything does around here. And we'll be here another five years saying, remember when we were talking about, you know, I think I called it Chet Jippity back at the time because I thought I was being witty and it was yeah. actually just really tired and old. But, you know, I mean, we'll we'll be rehashing it. It'll morphed into something else. Yep. Yep. But I, I do think that this is another step forward in that, though I called it ambiguous and nebulous, this whole thing about SDN, I do think it's another step forward within yeah. that realm of software-defined networking and, and adding intelligence to what we're doing that extends the human ability, that augments the engineer. I really think that. So this is really cool stuff. And yeah. Uh, maybe I will write a blog post about SDN maybe, again and see. Maybe, of course you will. Of course, of course we will yeah, because it is yeah. what we do. We write things and we, we talk right, and right. we drink and we know things. That's our job. Yep, yep. In that order, <laughs> and because it tends to be that I know more things after after a couple of drinks Absolutely. and not prior. So. Yeah. But, uh, Leon, it was good to talk to you. I appreciate it. We're going to have you on about, I don't know, a million more times because there's so many things to talk to you about now that I'm getting to know you. So um, uh, glad to have you today. It is absolutely delightful. I'm really, I'm happy to be part of this and happy to be part of the, the bigger capital T, this that is Kentic. And uh, I just appreciate you making space for me today on the show. Absolutely. So uh, if somebody wants to reach out to yell at you about your opinions on SDN, <laughs> how can they do that online? I, I welcome it because it's, you know, a, a rich source of conversation and, and no right answers and no wrong answers. So my name is Leon Adato and uh, Adato is spelled A-D-A-T-O. And that's how you can find me. I'm Leon Adato on almost every platform on uh, the bird site that I will not name. I'm very, very infrequently there, but on Blue Sky and on Mastodon and on LinkedIn, all a GitHub, you can find me all those places. And also, uh, I have a personal blog, Adato Systems, which is my last name in the word systems.com. You can find me there too. And of course, you can find me, Leon, at kentic.com as well. Very good. Excellent. And uh, you can find me online. You can search my name in LinkedIn, find me on Twitter, network underscore Phil, uh, my blog, networkphil.com. And uh, now, if you have an idea for an episode of Telemetry Now or you'd like to be a guest, I'd love to talk to you. So please reach out. Telemetry now at kentic.com. I'd love to talk to you about it. Anyway, for now, thanks for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.